John chapter 18, starting at verse 28. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The leaders of the Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated what kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the leaders of the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you were a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Jesus asked him, what is, uh, sorry, Pilate asked him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the leaders of the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. Welcome. Hello. Um, so we're continuing in our narrative lectionary. So um, we're at the point now in the story where Jesus has started to become like put on trial. Last week, I believe it was the trial with Caiaphas and you had the denial of Peter. Um, this week, we are looking at the part where he is in front of Pilate. So the Jewish leaders have brought Jesus to the Roman official, the Roman in charge um, of this area, Pilate, and brought him before him and said, we would like you to um, basically <laughs> do something with him. He's a troublemaker, um, he's claiming he's king of the Jews, and you should definitely get rid of him. Um, I love the absolute blind irony and hypocrisy of them not being able to go inside because that would make them unclean and they would not be able to then be part of the Passover. And just that, I, I love, I, I always find it fascinating when people can hold those two 
seemingly completely diametric like ideas in your mind of we're handing this person over so that you can kill them because we can't we're not allowed can you do our dirty work for us but we can't come inside because that would make us unclean and then we couldn't have a party later i'm being flippant but there is something in that that just is amazing in a that the real that that place of just really not getting it and this whole passage is asking us the question of what is truth and where do our allegiances lie who are we following who is what voice is it that we are listening to when i was doing some reading and research for this this week I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with Pilate. I was really interested to know how much we actually knew on a kind of historical level about this person, Pilate, who he was. Um, and there, are, there is stuff written about him beyond what's in um, the Gospels. And he is the fifth governor of this area of Judea. Um, he was under the Emperor Tiberius. He's essentially in this particular area, he answers to Tiberius. So he is a very, very powerful person. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. He's, at, he's in Jerusalem because of the Passover. So essentially what is an oppressive occupationary political force empire has sent someone to Jerusalem because they're celebrating the Passover, which is what? The celebration of the throwing off of an oppressive power. God releasing God's people from Egypt, essentially, and, and freeing them. So it makes sense that Pilate thinks that, or the Roman Empire thinks this is an important time for someone like Pilate to be in Jerusalem with his army there in charge, keeping a, a, a lid on things. And he has some tension and history with um, the Jewish people. He has essentially caused riots in the past by being religiously insensitive um, and this has caused certain certain factions of the Jewish people to to riot to rise up and to even be willing to be put to death to to get rid of I think he brought the the colors the like the Roman colors the the, the military in and they were really against this it was very insensitive um, on a religious and cultural level he also finally gets called back to Rome because he basically massacres um, a load of armed Samarit uh, Samaritans that have, who are also following a Messiah-like person. Um, and he just slaughters them all and the Samaritans go, uh, I'm not, we're not okay with this. And so he gets called back to Rome at that point because he's too heavy handed. So this is a person who is not afraid to spill blood. He's not afraid to, um, to answer rebellion with violence he wants to be in control he wants to stay in power he's also what's interesting i found out is that he has the power to appoint the head priest so caiaphas is in his position because of Pilate, and caiaphas maintains his position for the whole time that Pilate is in control so that would also looking at politics that would say that there is a a happy relationship, a happy-ish relationship there. That, there, that Caiaphas is, is willing enough to compromise and work with Pilate to maintain his power and Pilate is happy enough for him to stay there and to stay in that position of power 
because it, it suits him too. He uses temple treasury money to build an aqueduct and we see here he is quite happy to kill someone that these, the Jewish religious leaders have brought to him, essentially just to keep the peace. With that lens on, I found it very interesting reading this passage. The idea of like this dialogue that Jesus is having with Pilate and also recognizing the stuff that I had learned as a young person in my home church, growing up in my youth work of what was being said here and some of the emphases and the intention that had been put upon someone like Perla and even Jesus. Pilate's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is like, well, why are you asking? Like, is this coming from you or is someone else telling you to say this? And Pilate being put on the spot at this point is going, well, I'm not a Jew, am I? The, your people and your leaders have brought you to me. So there must be a reason, what have you done? And Jesus' response is to talk about, well, my kingdom isn't the same as yours. My kingdom is not from here. And as I was reading this, I re so this is what I was saying, but the, the lens at which I was reading it through at this point was very different. And I suddenly realized I had on a subconscious level always read this passage where Jesus is talking about where his, if, if his kingdom were of this world, that his followers would be, would be fighting physically to save him. And I was reading that as if, well, if heaven was here, then the angels would stop Jesus from being crucified. It doesn't say that at all, but that's how I was reading it. And I was thinking, well, when I was taught scripture, when I was taught these stories as a young person, I was taught essentially all the gospels overlapping as if it was one story, not separate voices, not different people sharing with different intentions to different audiences. It was, it was all pushed together. And in Matthew, Jesus does say to Peter, do you not think I could ask God for some angels to save me, put your sword away. And I think that's probably where I've got it from. Jesus is saying that, he's not saying that, he's saying, well, my kingdom isn't of this world, it's a very different type of kingdom. My kingdom is not like yours, it's not one built upon military might, upon power, upon politics. It's one that's built on truth. At which point Pilate turns around and goes, well, what is truth? And I can just, I can almost hear it, that kind of, what's truth? And he wanders out to go and try and talk to the Jewish leaders again. Pilate's world is one of power and armies and war. He's a politician, he's worldly. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's not afraid to spill blood. Why? is his way of looking at the world here for us to read in scripture. Because he is the complete opposite of Jesus. When I do um, inclusion training with churches, one of the things that I've said a few times now is that it's not actually about what scripture says, it's about how you're reading it and how you're interpreting it. And this to me was just brought into clarity this week, reading this passage, that actually 
I do think if you, if you read that with the lens of, well, the heavenly realm and God could and would send angels to, to save Jesus, I can see how I was reading it in that way and understanding it in that way. Yet when I think about the intention of what John is doing, the intention of putting Jesus as this alternative to the worldly power of Pilate, that's clearly not what's being said. What's being said is Jesus is a non-violent response. Jesus is a, a kingdom of love, a kingdom. Like when you look at Jesus's actions, they all seem to be about reaching out to those who are marginalized, reaching out to those that are left out and put out. And this small shift in understanding has massive implications. If we're saying that Jesus's kingdom is completely different to the worldly one that isn't based on military might, isn't based on power, war, borders, politics, it's none of those things. And what does that do when we read the rest of scripture? What does that do when we read some of the stories in the Old Testament? What does that do when we look at the world around us now? And I find myself with Pilate going, well, what is truth? It was pretty difficult to figure it out. I feel like Jesus is asking what truth claims us. What truth are we aligning ourselves with? I get where Pilate's coming from. What is truth? Everyone has their own truth. You look at social media today, everyone, everyone's following their own truth. There, are, there seem to be many truths out there. There's that classic, famous um, spin person from the US when Trump was in power talking about alternative truths. And that seems funny, but it's very real and very true to all of us. And I, I think about my, my social media wall and the truths that my different friends and the different people I'm connected with are pursuing and what is important to them and what claims their loyalty. And Jesus is asking Pilate the same thing. Where's your loyalty, Pilate? Where's your allegiance? Where's your truth? Pilate's truth is a very worldly one. The empirical truth of what is happening is lost to us, quite frankly. And this, blend, this practice of blending stories across each other and trying to figure out what actually happened, it doesn't do justice to the writers. It doesn't do justice to their intentions. And clearly, for, at least for me, quite frankly, it's confusing. Even the truth of what happens to Pilate after this encounter is completely lost to us. Although his character and life are massively embellished by Christian tradition. Interestingly enough, he's turned either into a convert who is martyred and becomes a saint, or he dies so cursed that the land that he is supposedly buried in is still haunted by demons. Take your pick. I doubt either are true. 
And so what is this truth that we are searching for, that Jesus is speaking of, that Pilate is questioning? I don't think it's a truth about empiricism. It's a truth about why and who and therefore so what? Why did the writer include these? Why are we reading this a certain way? Who is this truth for? Who is this story for? Who is this truth about? And therefore so what? What happens next? What do we do with this newfound truth? Which, to be honest, I realise in this crowd this morning is probably not that groundbreaking. But I do think it's something that should hold us to account each day as we interact. Jesus says that those of us that are in truth will know his voice. There's quite a bit of John about Jesus's voice. Lazarus hears Jesus's voice. Sheep know, his people know his voice. Again here, those that are in truth will know the voice of Jesus and recognize it. This idea of truth is something that John plays with all the way through his gospel. It is clearly important to him. The word truth only occurs once in Matthew, three times each in Mark and Luke, but it appears 25 times in John. And the word true only appears once in each of the other gospels, appears 23 times in John. I don't think this is about what is true, but about who is truth. About Jesus, about that relationship with Jesus. And it is about recognizing that there is power in falsehood. There is power in the, the opposite, in the, in the worldly truth. And that's seductive. It's dangerous. There's power in lies, power in misrepresentation. And ultimately, Jesus is the victim of misrepresentation and that power. We look at the world around us and see so many more victims of the power of falsehood, the power of the lie, and the power of misrepresentation. The religious leaders choose Barabbas, who is described as a bandit 
bandit is meant that word for bandit is mentioned previously in John with the good shepherd again that juxtaposition the opposite the religious leaders choose the power of falsehood choose the power of the bandit over the good shepherd over truth because in the end the truth is that God the truth of God the truth of Jesus is about the giving of life if it's the opposite it's about the giving of love it is not the power of subjugation or the promotion of hatred and so when we're confronted with this question of what is truth what calls our allegiance what voice do we hear do we recognize are we choosing transforming and freeing love of Christ a truth that is so deeply countercultural especially well it's always been it feels especially countercultural right now Or we're going to choose something that lets us feel safe, that does give us power, that lets, hold, lets us hold on to a little bit of control that we have. Let's just be comfortable. Or I'll be willing to be dangerously free. Amen. Thank you, Dawn, for those reflections on that passage. We're going to uh, discuss them now. I'm going to ask Udoka to come up and So, truth. It's a, um, Dawn wasn't there, but just over a week ago, I was at a, a meeting where the speaker was talking about truth, and he talked about truth being a relational thing, not a prepositional thing. And what he meant by that is some people have truth as an absolute. This is what we believe, and, and therefore you're on this side or you're on that side. And if you're on that side, you're out. And they use the truth to exclude people. They use, they use their version of the truth to set standards, which may or may not be good standards, and to include and exclude at will. And it's a very dangerous thing, but it happens an awful lot. The Pharisees did it, and their successors live on today, whereas truth actually is a thing that sets you free. It's... A relational thing, the truth of the Bible is Jesus says, I am the truth. And 
It's about being in relation with him. It's a tr truth sets things free. It shines light, I think. Um, so, Rodoka, what reflections do you have on this whole matter? I definitely resonate with the idea of it being a relational thing. And I was thinking, as you were speaking, Dawn, about um, how many different truths were within that situation. Um, the Sadducees and Pharisees and their truths with regards to their religious laws and the things that Jesus, in the way that he carried himself and the claims that he was making, were violating. Um, their sense of indignation and um, their resistance to that was rooted in established truths and um, the idea of um, Pilate being part of an empire that was um, dominating this area of, of Judea is also a very true thing, which comes with certain material realities that enabled him to stand the judgment over Jesus. Um, and all of that kind of filters out more widely into um, making it contemporary. There's, there's certain things and institutions that we have in the modern era um, that stand on established truths, such as um, the state has particular powers to um, do things or to prevent people doing things. Um, life lasts as long as it lasts, and death is something that is permanent and everlasting, um, and so on. And I think that the idea of truth the relational truth that we're able to have in faith of Jesus, not necessarily erasing um, the true things um, of power or oppression or um, just you know, exposing them to be different from what they are, but really re revealing a deeper truth. Um, and it can exist between and amongst and underneath all those things and be sustaining even when we can begin to understand that all of these things are actually more fleeting and far less um, deterministic than we might have been taught to believe. I think that, especially as someone who, I remember as, as, a, as a child being, always being taught, you know, lies go to hell. Um, so you always have to say the truest thing, you always have to say the right thing, and there's only one truth. And then becoming an adult um, and realizing that there's so many things that are competing for the truest thing in each situation. Um, but also there are so many things that may be true to one person, but deeply false and dangerously false to another. I think that holding on to the truth of, you know, Jesus's love um, and the life that comes through that and the peace that comes through putting that truth at the center of your life first of all gives you a sense of discernment and ability to um when by aligning yourself closely to what he wants and and and, and his message an ability to discern one so-called truth from another but also a sense of i guess peace and centeredness because there's always um another true thing that can disrupt or distract. Thank you, yes. I think truth can be difficult, can't it? It can be um, sometimes I've heard people say, oh, well, the less, the less I know about that, the better. Because if I knew the whole story, if I knew the whole truth, I might have to do something. And I think Pilate's a bit like that here. He doesn't really want to know what truth is and what the truth is because if he really knew what the truth was, he'd probably have to 
he'd have to say, well, I'm not going to put this man to death. And he'd have to put up with a bit of bother, as really he probably just wants an easy life. And, um, you know, light shines on darkness, and sometimes truth can uncover difficult things that we don't want to know about and we have to avoid. And um, <clears throat> there's that sense of speaking truth to power. We talk about that a bit. And, and I was thinking, here, here are these people, here are the priests turning Jesus over to Pilate. And I think it's never good when the church or when church leaders, when religious leaders are working together with those in power. It's never a good thing. It doesn't end well. The history of Christianity is, is full of examples how Christendom is not a good thing. And you need leaders that speak truth to those in power. You need leaders to stand up and, and say what the truth is and not to be afraid to do that. I was thinking mischievously, forgive me any, any Anglican friends listening, but I was thinking, you know, Caiaphas was appointed by Pilate, and I thought, well, the Archbishop is appointed, well, technically by the government, by the Prime Minister. He's given a list of people by, the, by some church committee that meets, and, and, and technically is part of establishment. Now, I do think the current Prime Minister, Archbishop of Canterbury is quite good at speaking truth, and he's sometimes spoken up and said, on certain policies, this isn't right, this isn't good, we should be doing more for refugees, we should be doing more about the poor, we should be standing up against loan companies and other things he said. I think he's done some good work there. But there's a certain conflict there I can't help thinking. I'm quite glad that the Baptist Union president is elected by the churches and by the, the ministers and, and we don't send a, a list of candidates into Boris Johnson for him to decide who should be the... Um, Baptist president. I think that there's also a sense of being, the, fruit, the truth can set you free, but only if you let it. Um, and within the particular context which Jesus was living and which Jew, um, Jewish people were experiencing this sense of domination and oppression and danger. Um, I definitely un could understand, you know, wanting to get the best representation in front of some of a power that can you know, decide whether you live or die, or decide how hard or easy your life is. So sometimes even people who might be liberated by truth um, would find that incredibly threatening and disrupting and, and scary, and might themselves want to suppress it, um, which makes it even more important, I think, to really and truly consider the, the, the truth from a position of like internal honesty. Um, it's like what, what might serve the community best on, on the uppermost level. Um, it reminds me of when, when people you know, go to represent particular communities or the black community in parliament and they often regurgitate a lot of the logics of power and domination just to kind of get closer to it um, as opposed to being directly honest and saying like, yes, I could, you know, even from a position of being marginalized in one way, stand to benefit from the marginalization of others. Um, for example, like really horrible border policies or, um, or austerity or so on. But it's so important to just because, you know, we might be marginalized in some ways or 
uh, pushed aside in some ways to always kind of hold on to a central idea of, of, of truth because it's so easy to make assumptions that, that what we say will, will automatically be the best without truly thinking with compassion and empathy to those that might have even less power than we have. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pick on Helen, actually. Do we have any, do we have any good, good comments on the chat that you, you can share for us? Okay, this is from Jeff, who is online, and he says, you get mathematical truths, rock solid, but of limited application. You get scientific truths, they are held temporarily likely to be overwritten, and then you also get religious truths, encapsulated in creeds and held forever and not reviewed, which is fascinating because last time we had Bible studio that we were talking about creeds and how Baptists don't like them very much. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. That's, that's helpful. Good. Well, I think that's giving us some food for thought on truth. Thank you, Adoka. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, others who, who may have chatted or commented. These are continuing conversations we can continue to think about and can continue over coffee at the end of the service as well. Let us pray. Oh God, who loves us all without discrimination, we come to you this morning remembering once again that here in the UK it is Mothering Sunday. We are grateful for our mothers for all that they have done for us and all that they continue to do. Thank you for their love and commitment to their children. But we also recognize that for some people, this is a difficult day. One that holds hurt, maybe even anger because of negative memories those whose experience of being mothered was not a good one. Those who grieve because they are unable to have children. Those who are separated from their children for many different reasons. We ask that you will draw alongside all of us, those who are hurting and those who are rejoicing. We ask that you will bring comfort, healing, forgiveness, and peace to those who need it. And that each of us may seek to bring support and hope to those who are hurting. And we also pray for fathers, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and all those others who accompany children as they grow to adulthood. Guide and bless all our relationships, whether within our families, our church communities, or in those places where we live. God of truth and righteousness, we turn our eyes now to the wider needs of the world and, and pray that we may indeed live in the truth of your kingdom. We pray particularly for peace in Ukraine and in Yemen, Syria, Israel, Palestine, Congo, 
Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Myanmar, and so many more places that it is hard to be aware of them all. Guide the leaders of these warring nations to be concerned for the welfare of their people and not just for their own power and status. Help us to recognize that we might also be complicit in what is happening in these places by some of our own actions. Help us to examine our consciences that we too may play a part in bringing about peace. We pray for those who are struggling to put food on their tables in this country as well as in those places more commonly recognized as poor. May our government establish policies that bring fair ways of living to all, that those with plenty may be willing to share with those without. We pray especially for the Tea Party event to be held in Parliament Square this Wednesday an occasion intended to highlight the pitiful wages received by those who care for the most vulnerable in our society. We recognize the efforts of our carers and pray that changes may be made so that they may receive proper recompense for their work. And finally, we pray for our own church community, Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. You know that we, like many others, have been going through difficult times and having to make difficult decisions. Continue to be with us, we pray, guiding our choices for the future of our church, that we may truly be a living, growing part of your kingdom. We bring all these prayers in your name. Amen. And now may the loving kindness of God fill all our hearts. May the glorious majesty of Christ the King captivate our minds. May the ever-present Holy Spirit give us peace and joy, now and forever. Amen.